I am excited about what God is doing in the book of John with us. This has been, uh, man, just life-changing for me. Some of the stuff that God has dealt with me on, on, this, uh, on this book has just been thrilling for me. And uh, we're going to be talking about five things from John 5 that, that should be amazing to us. And uh, we started this last week. And, and if you remember, I talked about as a kid seeing a uh, blacksmith hammering out a sword and seeing the sparks fly and seeing the sword being molded by these hammer blows. And, and I was saying that we are going to get five hammer blows from Jesus. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's dealing with issues that they have, they, they ser- have serious issues with him on, and they are like hammer blows. Because we are removed from that environment, we do not understand the impact oftentimes of the words he's saying. He's going to say five things that every single one of them would make their jaws drop. Every single one of them they would be staggered by. And so we're going to talk about that. Now, last week we started. We said, be amazed because of the deeds he does in verse 19. Verse 19, I don't have the verse up, but it just says that Jesus gave them this answer. Truly, truly, I tell you. Now, that double truly is, always means he's saying something that's incredibly important. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Jesus is making a claim there of equality with God. He's saying the father, the son, the spirit, they want to have this relationship with us and they are working in concert together. Jesus is making this audacious, audacious claim. Be amazed at the deeds he does. Oh, I did have it up. So second one is this. Be amazed at the love between the Father and the Son. That's verse 20 right here on the screen. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He's saying this is the point of this is for you to be amazed. You're going to see greater works. Even greater works are coming. Greater, think about this. Greater works than a healing? He just did a healing. He just healed a man who couldn't walk. Greater works than healing? Greater works than than a blind person seeing? Greater works than bringing Lazarus back from the dead? What are these greater works? And here's what they are. We know from, from, from all of Scripture, here's what they are. It's what he's doing in us. The miracle of a life that has been changed. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. I don't know if you get to collect on insurance twice on that type of thing. I'm not sure how that works. I can see that could be a problem. But he was still a human being. See, what's happening to us? What's happening to people who are followers of Jesus Christ? God changes them from the inside out. It is a miracle. It is a greater work. That's why Jesus says, Don't fear the person who can kill you. Jesus is like, that's nothing. Fear the person who has the ability to give life for eternity. That's who you should be reverencing. That's who you should be in awe of. And so what's going on now? What's going on in our midst? God is working in people's lives. He's changing people from the inside out. And that's the greater work. Because nothing that we have, no power in the world can do that. Nothing can change a person from the inside out. My favorite story is that, you know, the little little kid and the parents say, you have to sit to eat dinner with us. You can't stand and eat dinner. I want to stand. No, you can't stand. Sit down. That's proper table manners. So the kid sits down and starts to eat and looks around and goes, I'm sitting on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing. I'm still standing. Why? Because the heart's not changed. You can change a physical position. I mean, I had five kids. I could make my kids do stuff. I could do that. 
but it didn't make them want to do it. I couldn't change their heart. Only God can change a heart. That's the miracle that we're talking about here, the miracle of a changed life. Be amazed. Be amazed at the love between the Father and the Son because he says you're going to see greater works coming out of that love. The third one, this is where we stopped. We stopped on two last week, so here we go with number three. Be amazed because Jesus gives life. This ties right in with what we've been saying. A lot of this overlaps. But he says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 25, very truly, that's truly, truly, that's that double emphasis. I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So we're to be amazed because Jesus gives life. So this is that third point. Jesus now claims something. He's claiming something that is the prerogative of the Father. This is important for us to see. The Jews all knew the Father is the one who gives and takes life. Jesus is saying, I have that power now. I have that power. Um, you, you just got to think how staggering this is to them. I mean, this is part of understanding Scripture. I feel like I harp on this a lot. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of the listeners. We have to try to think like the listeners think, not like 21st century Americans think, because we think of things differently than they thought of things. So to, to a man, to a woman, to a child in that whole area, they, they, would, they automatically think only the Father has the ability to give life. Why? Well, there's many verses, but here's one. Deuteronomy 32.9. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death, I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. That's the Father speaking to his... To, so they've got that ingrained. Only the Father can do that. And suddenly Jesus makes this staggering claim. And I'm sure, I mean, if you try to put yourself in their shoes, here's what they're thinking. Who does he think he is? And then we've already seen a few verses earlier They have decided that he's claiming to be God, and so they're trying to kill him. They're going, he thinks he's God. They got it. He is teaching them that he is God, but they can't wrap their minds. This is too much. It's too far for them. He's cementing this claim. I am the only. I can give life. This is way beyond healing. The power of life is supposed to only reside in God the Father, and Jesus says he has it. John John primed us for this at the very beginning of the book when he said, in him was life. In him was life. And I want you to notice something. If you look at verse 25, there we go, verse 25. All right, there's, there's two aspects of this power. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. So there's two, two aspects. There's this future time, this time that he says is coming. This is the power to raise someone from the dead for eternity. The idea that we get of eternity with Jesus, with the Father, with the Spirit, with fellow saints, eternity together in heaven. This is what he's talking about here. So he's giving us that future aspect. I talked to a guy one time, and he was saying, Bob, can I really be honest here? And I said, of course you can really be honest. I always worry when people say, can I be honest? Because then I'm thinking, what are you the rest of the time? 
You know, you, you know, are you only warning me the honest times? The rest I need. But he says, look, if I could be honest, I just want to say this. Singing and praising God for eternity and no sex does not sound like much fun to me. That's what he told me. He says, I, I think about heaven. I'm thinking, wow, like an eternal choir. And I said, oh, that tells me what kind of church you were raised in. <laughs> that gives me some clues on where, on where you're coming from. And, uh, and then no sex sound, doesn't sound like funny. And I said, okay, I see where you're coming from. I got it. But if I can take a, an illustration from C.S. Lewis and tweak it just a little bit, I'd like to say this. You know, what if, what if when my oldest son, Derek, was three, I told him, hey, bud, we're going to the beach. I mean, you're three. This is the first time you'll consciously remember being at the beach, possibly. We're going to the beach. It's going to be so fun. We're going to rent a house there. We're going to stay for three or four days. And if Derek looked at me and goes, a different house? Different from our house? I like our house. I don't want to stay in a different house. Will my toys be there? No, buddy. Your toys aren't going to be there. Man, we're going to have so much to do. It is going to be so fun. There's an ocean there. We're going to play in the water. Water? I have a pool. No toys? I'm like, pool? Pool? No, that's not a pool. That's a small bathtub. That's not what I'm talking about. You know? And, And he'd be like, I don't want to. Strange house, no toys, not my toys, not my pool. I don't want to go. And I'm like, you don't understand what you're saying. It's kind of like in the words of one of my favorite theologians, Stanley from The Office. Boy, have you lost your mind? That's what I'm thinking, right? That's what we'd be thinking. Have you lost your mind? You're talking about a baby pool. I'm talking about the ocean. And so there's this, this is what happens with us. There's this future aspect, and and it's hard for us to figure out. It's hard for us to understand from our viewpoint. And he's trying to tell us this this future aspect is incredibly important for us. It's incredibly important for us to to understand. And not just future, there's a present aspect. He says he has the power to give life right now. For dead people walking, I see dead people. He has the power. Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. He has the power to bring us to life right now. He's claiming that ability. He's claiming that it's in him. He has it in himself. He's claiming to be the source of life. Can you begin to see why all of these things are like hammer blows to the Pharisees? It goes against everything they've believed. They can't wrap their minds around it. It's rocking their world. And this is the crux of the matter. They can't believe what he's saying. And and this is the crazy thing. They understand what he's saying. They get it. They're like, we got to kill him. He's claiming to be God. They got the message. They got the message. The disciples didn't get the message very well. But the Pharisees figured it out pretty quick. But here was the thing. They couldn't believe what he was saying. And this, this is the struggle, because they won't believe. And this is the crux of the matter for us sometimes, right? We struggle to believe what Jesus says. You know, it's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another thing to believe God. And there's a world of difference between those two phrases. It's very important for us to understand this. It's quite another thing to take God at his word. And so we have something that's going on here that's incredibly huge. 
in verse 23, uh, wait a minute, I've got to find it now. I've, I've totally pushed it to the wrong spot. Uh, well, it's in verse 23, I think, uh, where he says the Father did this so that everyone would honor the Son. And, and that word honor is a really key word, honoring the Son. The word honor is this idea to revere, to, to, uh, to see the worth of something and to acknowledge it. It's a word that often, is often used also for the idea of worship. Because what are we doing when we worship? We're revering God. We're seeing how awesome he is and we're acknowledging it. That's what worship is. And so this word honor has to do with that. It's, it's this idea of worship. You know, you think about it. If you're not worshiping the son, then you're not worshiping the father. And this is really hard for the Pharisees to grasp because they believed they were the true worshipers of the father. They were the elite They had made worshiping God, living for God, something that was out of the ability of most normal people to do. It was something that was incredibly time-consuming. You could not have a job and be a Pharisee because it was too time-consuming to be a Pharisee. It was like that was your job. So consequently, the only people who could afford to be Pharisees were rich people. See, they made it out of reach of most people. They, they made it like we're up on this pedestal. You know, man, one of the things I fight so much because it's kind of ingrained some, somewhat in our culture is this idea that somehow uh, the pastor, he's up on this next level. I got it that one time years ago, long time ago, nobody this here. Somebody came out and said, will you pray for this for me? And I said, sure, I'll, listen, call in and we'll put it on the prayer list. No, 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 just, I just want you to pray. And I'm like, ah, I know what's going on here. You think my prayers go through the ceiling better than anyone else's prayers. That's what you think. And that's wrong. See, that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees were teaching. We're up here. You're down here. Trust us. Don't trust me. Don't trust me. If I say something that you think you're not so sure about, check it out. And if you confirm to yourself that you, you don't think it's right, tell me because I'm wrong sometimes. It's very rare. <laughs> oh, I was just wrong. <laughs> you know, but I'm wrong sometimes. So, so don't, I don't, no. Walking in Jesus, being involved in a community of believers is not blind trust. You got to think for yourself. You got you to evaluate scripture. You got to come to conclusions that are your conclusions before God, between you and God. That's okay. I'm fine with that. Even if you disagree with me, even if we end up agreeing to disagree with each other, it's cool. But don't blindly follow. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. That's what the Pharisees wanted. And Jesus calls them out on it. Jesus calls him out and later, later in his life, towards the end there in the book of Matthew, where he starts pronouncing these woes. And if you ever read that, stop and think about what he's saying. You know, woe to you, you whitewashed sepulchers. You, he said, your tombs that have gotten a fresh coat of paint on them. They look great. What's inside? Death. He says, that's you. That's you. I mean, if they had any doubts before then, boy, when he started pronouncing those woes, they're like, man, we, this guy's, we got to get rid of him, Right? So they made this time-consuming and costly, this idea of true worship. And Jesus says, no, that's not right. Just worship me. Just honor me. Just honor me. And you're honoring the Father. And it totally, you know, it totally undercuts their authority. It totally undercuts their place in society. 
If you think about this, Jesus can judge. This is what's beautiful in this passage. Jesus can judge because he has been judged. He is the just judge, and he's the justifier of those who believe him, Scripture tells us. And the minute you see that you deserve judgment and you you unite with Jesus Christ by faith, that is the moment you are saved from judgment. That's what love is. Jesus says, I will make you holy. Holiness is Christ in me. What we just sang. And so, that's what love is. Jesus says, I will make you holy. And that's where true joy lies. Because that's what we're made for. That's what he made us for. Also, I need to mention the the word, in this passage, if you read through this passage, you'll see the word judgment and the word condemnation multiple times. It's the same word in the Greek. Uh, Krisis is the word in the Greek. And it's a very important word for us to grasp because there's a lot of ideas about what goes on with justice and judgment and condemnation and all those kind of things. But, and it does, it means judgment. It means condemnation. Those are not, they didn't translate them wrong. But here's the root meaning of the word krisis. And this is what, to me, is the most frightening part of this whole thing. The root word of crisis is separation. It is pushing away. That's condemnation. That's judgment. And that's the worst kind. Have you ever had someone that you really loved and you thought loved you cut their ties with you? That separation is agony. In Romans 2, it tells us what the wrath of God is. It says the wrath of God has come down. It says the wrath of God is when God gives people up. He says to them, you want that? You want that? You've you've told me over and over and over you want that? Okay. I give up. I give you up. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. The idea is that Scripture tells us in the end, no one will argue because God will give them what they wanted. You don't want me, you will will spend eternity apart from me. This idea of separation and the giving up is what led C.S. Lewis to say one time in one one of his books, he said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. They've been given up. And so be amazed. Be amazed because of the deeds he does. Be amazed at the love between the Father and the Son. Be amazed because Jesus gives life. Be amazed because Jesus is the judge. And the fifth one is be amazed at the power of his voice at the end of time. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I know, I know, you know, right? I read that, and you're like, wait, you're saying be amazed, and he says, don't be amazed. Right there, it's in black and white, Bob. What are you doing? All right, I I want you to understand something. This is a linguistic tool, okay? I know you're thinking, well, then you're, if that's true, your outline stinks. No, it's it's a linguistic tool. It's like saying, it's like saying, that was amazing, that was amazing. You think that was amazing? Wait till you see this. This, those pale compared to this. So what is he doing? It's it's this tool to say, this is the big one. The fifth one is huge. Don't let this slide by. Don't ignore this. It's like saying, you think the previous stuff was amazing? Ha, this is nothing 
in comparison to what I'm about to lay on you. It's like, it's, it, we do this. It's, it's, a, it's a linguistic tool in English, too. You ever do this? You say, oh, you think that was cool? Watch this. Usually people say that right before they hurt themselves, right? It's, it's, the, it's the kind of the, the biblical equivalent of hold my beer. Because it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, guys, we got to go home. Let's pack up our bikes and go home. One more jump. Watch this. You know, it's like, get out the cameras. Someone's going to hurt themselves, right? Well, that's what Jesus, oh, see, now I feel bad even saying that's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> I don't want to link Jesus in this way. To, but Jesus is saying, you think that was amazing? Look at this. Look at this. All will hear my voice calling them from the grave. Every single person who has ever lived, Jesus says, I will call them from the grave. I'm the one. Think how stunning that was to them. This poor man, this poor Jew from a nowhere town, from a nowhere part of Israel, not even the most important part of Israel, from a nowhere place, who has, who has an uncertain lineage. They're pretty sure that his father is not his real father, that his, his mom, and, and we see that. They kind, of, they kind of subtly accuse his mother of, of being someone who sleeps around. Pro, probably his father, was a, they think, was a Gentile. They called him a Samaritan. That's what they're saying there. Your mom slept with a Roman soldier. That's where you come from. So he's nothing to them, and he's telling them, you're going to die. And one day, I'm going to call you from the grave, and you're going to look at me. Think about that. That's incredible. That's incredible. Be amazed at that. The righteous and the unrighteous will be called forth. So the key is, where do I get my righteousness? See, because we have a problem. We have a problem as a person individually, but we have a problem as a culture. We have a problem in this world. We all want justice, right? But no one wants a judge. We all want justice, but no one wants a judge. Um, I really like, um, they, they were hot for a while. Now they're kind of eh, 21 pilots, but I really liked them because one of their songs was, you're the judge. Oh, no. That was, and this whole song talked about guilt, had this idea of guilt and repentance. But the thing was, you're the judge. Oh, no, set me free. See, we all want justice. We're not so interested in a judge. We want somebody who will judge the evil out there in the world, but we don't want to be judged. Because what if the judge doesn't grade on a curve? You know, what if he doesn't just kind of say, well, I'll take the top 10%. Top 10%, oh, this is a rough group. Top 15% are going to get an A. What if the judge doesn't grade on a curve? Because I know I'm better than Saddam Hussein. But to actually be righteous with a judge who doesn't grade on a curve? Because if a judge is going to be righteous, his standards can't shift. They have to be the same. And God says it. He says it over and over. I treat everyone the same. Rich, poor, high, low. 
Man, woman, everyone gets treated the same by me, says the Lord. He started that in Deuteronomy, and it shot through the Bible. I don't play favorites. So what are the standards that God requires then if we want to check ourselves for righteousness? And it's really actually very simple things like love your neighbor as yourself. And we think about that for a minute and we start getting this sinking feeling, right? Oh, man. But God, (laughs) that neighbor, (laughs) he's a jerk. Treat him as you treat yourself. Are you as excited about the good things that happen for him as you are about the good things that happen for you? Are you quick to respond to something he may need as quick as you are to respond to something you may need? So something as simple as love your neighbor as yourself tells me that I'm in deep trouble. That's why, you know, if you remember when Jesus was talking about that, the Pharisees immediately stepped in and said, uh, who's my neighbor? Can we clarify this a bit? because that's pretty open-ended, Jesus. Is it people who live next door, or do we count two doors down? What about catty corner? How's that work when it's an open corner like that, because it's hard to cross the street, there's so much traffic. What about, you know, what about three doors down? What about, okay, listen, I'll just do my street. Are those my neighbors? See, they wanted to quantify it, because then they could do it. And Jesus left it wide open. In fact, he gave them a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we all are very familiar with this parable, so we're all actually very familiar with the fact that it's a Samaritan. We've been talking about this, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along. So I want you to think about something. Two Jews walked by this man. The Samaritan stops, and he ministers to someone, think about this, who hates him, who hates him. And the Samaritan was his neighbor. You see how that opens up? Who's my neighbor? It's huge. It's just not the people that I like. It's just not the people I can even just tolerate. It's the people who hate me. You're the judge. Oh, no. All he has to do is judge on love your neighbor as yourself, and I'm a goner. And I'm not in this alone. You are all goners too, dragging everyone down with me, right? So suddenly it it becomes this incredible thing that we have to deal with. See, we don't want a fair judge. We want a judge who will fudge it a bit in our favor. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need a Savior. And this is not news to you. But it helps us to understand better our desperation, our desperation, our desperate need. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, his righteousness, the Bible tells us, is moved into your account. You are now righteousness. You are now a righteous person. You can face the judge confidently. Why? Because you go before the judge and he says, how'd you do on love your neighbor? And you turn to Jesus and says, how'd I do on love your neighbor? And Jesus says, he did like me, God. He did like me. I get his righteousness This is the steal of the century. This is unbelievable. There's nothing in this world that can equal this kind of thought, this kind of fact, how this kind of truth can impact your life. Because knowing Jesus means I'm now righteous. And just some some quick thoughts. Knowing Jesus now means the end of boredom. Why? We just talked about this. 
because everything matters. And God works in the smallest of things. And God works in the craziest of things. Nothing is wasted in your life. No moment is wasted. No joy is wasted. No pain is wasted. No happiness is wasted. No sadness is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Your failures aren't wasted. God can use them. So it's the end of boredom. Also, it's the end of bitterness. Knowing Jesus is the end of bitterness. Why? Because bitterness is the desire to see someone else be pulled down, to see someone else be brought low. But God says, vengeance is mine. Trust me on this. So it's his job, not yours. Why? Because you will always get it wrong. Because God sees the whole thing. God can live in the past and the present and the future. He sees the whole thing so that someone who wrongs me, maybe wrongs me in a a terrible way, and I'm angry and they need, God, I want justice for that person. I want vengeance for that person. Maybe I should do it. I'll wrong them back. And God says, nope, you leave it to me because you don't know them. You don't know what happened to them when they were a child. You don't know what their family life was like. You don't know what like, their home life was like. You don't know what happened to them when they were a teenager. You don't know what happened. You back off. Let me be the one who decides because I know the whole story. That's why God says, vengeance is mine. It's not ours. So it, it, it means then we, we, got, we can stop being bitter. He's, he's got it. So knowing Jesus means it's the end of boredom. Knowing Jesus means it's the end of bitterness. Knowing Jesus means it's the end of judging yourself. We all want to be in control. And then what happens is we, tend to, we screw up, and then we condemn ourselves. We get so angry at ourselves. We hate the way we are. And so many things in our lives are about power and control in our lives. But those things, whatever they are, they could be so many different things. It could, it could be something on, <clears throat> on what you think about, what you do at work, or how you are to people, or athletics, or how you look, or, or, or eating disorders. Or I mean, there's just so many things. And what are they? they're all about control. They're all about having power and control in my life. And they always enslave us. They always enslave us and become this merciless taskmaster. I mean, you think about a person, if you want to think about a merciless taskmaster, think about a person who has an eating disorder and they're stick thin and they get in front of a mirror and they go, I'm fat, merciless. It's an enslavement. This is what happens when we judge ourselves. We have something that will judge us and it will drive us mercilessly. We think it will liberate us, but it doesn't. We think I'm never good enough. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, it's, this is it. It's the end of boredom. It's the end of bitterness. It's the end of judging yourself. And then Jesus says in the last verse, something that to me is, is, uh, is so incredible. I don't have it up there. I forgot to put it up there. But Jesus says in verse 30, he says, but I myself can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus says something that's incredibly humble. He, he I mean, you think about it. He makes these five amazing assertions. He's like, man, I got the power. I got the power. I got the word. I speak and it happens. I speak and people have life. I speak and people are raised and, and raised for the judgment. I have all of these things in me, the Father. I have this incredible power. 
but I don't seek to please myself. He says something incredibly humble. That is how power is supposed to work in this world. Power tempered by humility. And so Jesus shows us the way. This may be actually the heaviest hammer blow of all. It is the way of submission. The way of submission. Not something that's popular in our world. Not something that's real popular in our culture, right? People don't get up, say, vote for him. He's so submissive, right? He's so humble, quiet. No, we don't necessarily think those are such great things. So practically speaking, what does it mean to submit to God and to submit to his will? Practically speaking, how does this work out in our lives? Well, let's be honest. (laughs) The first thing is this. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It will be a struggle at times, practically, to be submissive to God, to allow God to trust him and not ourselves. I want to tell you, I read a lot of literature that pastors write, a lot of blogs, a lot of sites. And right now, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors that are, are in the middle of an existential crisis right now, partly, be, partly because of everything that's happened with COVID. Pastors whose churches were flourishing, then COVID hit and nobody's coming back and they're struggling and they, and they suddenly are going, I, I thought, and what they're saying is they're realizing they thought they were the reason it was flourishing. And then it doesn't flourish and they think, I'm not what I thought I was. And God's trying to tell them, them. God's trying to tell them and me, I don't need you. You're not that important to me. I got tons of people that could take your place in a heartbeat and I could, I could do just fine without you, Bob. And so, and so what's going on in this, in our, in our culture, there's, it's not just pastors and like, oh, poor, poor Bob, he's going through it. No, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Being willing to say, I trust you no matter what, is a struggle. You're going to wrestle with it your whole life. We have to decide, I am not going to be in control. We have to say, I'm going to subdue my will. I'm going to submit. I'm not going to sit here and think about that all the time and let it eat me alive. I'm going I'm I'm to give up, in a sense. Now, we can do this in, in, a way, in ways that uh, actually can be harmful. One, one extreme way is to say this, you know, maybe a, maybe a terrible tragedy, something terrible happens in your life, and, and you think you're supposed to thank God for it happening. God, I thank you that this, this, you know, this happened. No, you're not supposed to sit there and go, yes, I'm glad this terrible thing happened. That's one extreme. The other stream is to say this, and then, then people say this, you let this happen to me. This has ruined me. I hate you. Those are the two extremes. But what's the right way? To me, the right way is the Jesus way. Oh, well, there you go. Who thought I would say that, right? But it's the Gethsemane way. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the gates of hell are yawing open in front of him. And he is suddenly seeing 
to a degree he had never seen before, in a sense. I mean, he's, he's human and he's God, and I don't know how that, all that works out. But it obviously broke him right there in the garden. And, and, and he was horrified and he was shocked to his core. The two Greek words that are used there are very graphic words. Um, um, one of them is often used of a person that is so shocked that they lose control of their body. And that's the word that's used for Jesus when he sees what's coming. And he says, this is agony, and I do not want it. Father, is there another way? And then he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I will trust you. I will do your will. See, there is the way. There's the submission. I hate this. This, what, to, to act like it's not bad is so ridiculous. This hurts me. I don't want it. But I submit to you. Your will be done. That's, that's it. That leads. Now, that, that's the fight. That's the struggle. It leads to the second part. It leads to a decision to trust. So how can we keep learning to trust? We have to adjust our point of view. You know, I talked about my son, Derek. I talked about the idea of taking him to the beach and him, not his, him thinking his little pool and his little toys and his house will be great in comparison, just fine, you know, in comparison. And then, you know, we, we, take, we take our kids to the beach. We took our kids when they were little and they loved it and, and, and we love it. See, what happened was all of a sudden he was like, my pool sucks, you know. I want to, we go home, he goes, I need a bigger pool, dad. You know, this is going to be a bigger, right? He, he got a vantage point. He got a perspective suddenly. That all of a sudden he saw, this is what the beach is. It's awesome. It's awesome. My toys are not so great. Compared to the beach, he got a different vantage point. And this is what we have to do. We have to get that vantage point. I've talked about this a couple times, but I, I, just, I remember one time flying into Patrick Henry Airport. And as we were flying in, we went over Warwick Boulevard, or maybe it was Jefferson Avenue, and I could see there were lights, uh, uh, flashing lights, and I could see there was an accident on the road. And I could see people turning onto the road, heading, because it was about a quarter mile down, not, not knowing, and, you know, going, no. I didn't do that in the plane, you know. Oh. I, but thinking, oh, if I could just tell them, they would know. Don't go that way. Go down a block. Take the other one. You're going to run into all this trouble. Why? Because I had the vantage point. I could see... This is what was cool to me, I guess, when I think about that, because I think about weird things. I could see a guy sitting at the light, beginning to turn, and I'm going, I can see your future. I can see your future. You're in for 20 minutes of misery. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why you don't want me to be God, right? <laughs> all you hear is laughter all the time, right? <clears throat> we get a perspective, and suddenly we can see. You see, your loneliness is not, a, not the problem. Your financial situation is not the problem. Your relationship or lack of relationship is not the problem. Whatever is bothering you right now is not the problem. Your vantage point is the problem. At Gethsemane, Jesus suffered this mind-blowing, incredible mental anguish as he saw what he was going to go through. But he had a perspective. He had a vantage point. I will suffer this to have this glorious redeemed body of believers to live together with in eternity. In eternity, He had that perspective. We need that perspective. We need to see that. 
You know, we need to see Hebrews in, in Hebrews where it says, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What does that mean? He had a vantage point. He said, there's an incredible joy coming. This has to be gone through to get to that joy. I will do it. Because he had a perspective. And so your loneliness, that's not the problem. Your financial situation is not the problem. Whatever it is, it's not the problem. The problem is we need to have a bigger picture in the midst of our struggles. Now, I know for some people, they would say, oh, you know, okay, but if I could just see why, then I would submit. But you see what that is? If I could just see why this is happening to me, then I would submit and go through it in a godly way. So what you're saying is, I want to be in control. When you say that, you're saying, I want to be in control. That's the problem. Scripture tells us that God heard the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and did not grant them. God answers prayers based on what we would ask if we knew everything. That's how he answers prayers. So we have to learn the perspective that says, I may not understand this, but I know God loves me and he wants what's best for me. I mean, you look at the cross. Think about this. At the cross, the followers of Jesus decided this is the worst possible thing that could have happened in the whole world. Nothing good could come of this. This whole thing's over. They were like, it's over. The whole thing's over. It's gone. Run, hide. Nothing good can come out of this. Jesus died. Jesus told them it was coming, and they would not submit their minds to the truth of it because they had an agenda. They had a viewpoint. They had a vantage point that was theirs. And so they were sad. They were depressed. They were angry. They were bitter. Think about this. I mean, this just kind of blows me away. They were angry, depressed, and bitter about the greatest event in the history of mankind. The greatest event in God's redemptive history was taking place right before their eyes, and they hated it. They missed it. So I have the same problem sometimes. I don't get perspective. I can get angry. I can misunderstand. I can get sad. Because I want a comfortable and an orderly life. That's what we want. But what makes us think that we won't suffer if our master suffered? Why are we surprised? If I obey him, I will lose some friends. If I obey him, I will lose some money. If I will obey him, I will have to struggle. If I obey him, I will experience some difficult things that I would not experience if I was not a Christian. That's just the way it is. And I will at times have difficulty because I know there are more important things than my comfort at times. So this is going to be a struggle. We have to make a decision to submit. But last practical thing, submission is joy. It is the true joy for mankind. And you might be thinking, "Uh, I think I'm missing something here, Bob. Haven't heard a lot of joyful talk here in the last few minutes. Because it seems like if I want to follow Jesus, it's all sacrifice and serving and giving up and others first, yada, yada, yada. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But remember this. God made you. He made me. He knows where true joy is. He knows where your greatest joy is. He knows where your greatest meaning 
is, your greatest contentment is. And he says, submit to me and you will find it. And that brings us, you know, I think of Jesus there. In Hebrews 12, too, fixing, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus, who was the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. The joy set before him was you. And it was me. In some way, Jesus thought of you on the cross. That's the joy. Jesus on the cross said, this is for you, Bob. I'm doing this for you. This is great joy. This is where the joy is. He knows the path. Jesus submitted to the will of God, and he found that great joy. He says to us, submit to the will of God, and you will find that great joy. Because think about the options. I mean, you know, we've talked about this sometimes. Think about the option. What if God told you, hey, I'll let you plan it out and just have what you want for your life. All right, go ahead. Make your plan. Let me know. The question is then, at what age do I get to make that plan? 15. Oh, no, 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 God, not 15. I was an idiot at 15. I was a total moron. I would not know a bit of what my, that plan, okay, 20. Not 20. Yeah, I was still pretty much an idiot. 40. Not there yet. Ugh. All right, Bob, right now, 65. You can plan your life out. Because I've arrived, right? I have arrived. I'm at the pinnacle. I'm at the peak of my abilities mentally and being able to think mental and spiritual thoughts. But I thought I was that way when I was 15. So I don't know. Let's wait a few more years, God. You know, it just, it's ridiculous because God knows it all. He, he, if we planned our lives, we would regret it so quickly. Because suppose you met someone, let's just suppose you met some weird, some weird lady or some weird guy on the street, and they said, you are not going to believe what happened to me. And you're like, you're right, I probably won't believe. Anybody who enters that way, has conversation that way, I'm not going to believe it more than likely. I've gone three years into the future. Really? Yeah. Okay. What am I having for breakfast tomorrow? You know, I don't know, maybe they get it right. You see, she's still not sure. So you say, okay, what's the stock market numbers going to be to the decimal point next Tuesday? And then you wait for Tuesday, and you meet this person on the street, and they say, 34,371. Whoa. See, now you're spooked, but you're interested because we're talking about the stock market. All right? And so this person goes, I'm going to tell you something. There's a little company out there. It's the next Tesla. Right now, their stock is dirt cheap. If you have $500, put it in that stock. Now, I'd probably ask for one more thing. You know, I'd ask, like, what's the temperature going to be next Tuesday? And they come and they tell you the temperature. You're like, wow, wow. What was that stock again? Right? You'd be, I would. I'd be thinking, this is it. I'm going to be rich, right? It appeals to my, (laughs) that side of me. God is coming to us and he says, I know the future. I'm there right now. Because God lives outside of time. He is in the future and in the present and in the past simultaneously. I figured that out. No, you won't figure it out. And he tells you, I know. Trust me. 
I trust him. I want to trust him. I want to trust him. And so, what will we do? God is telling us that. First, we have to commit to the struggle. We have to know it's going to be a struggle. Second, we have to decide to trust him. And third, we have to look for the joy. These are the practical things we can be doing. We have to look for the joy in serving Jesus. We have to see where it's at. We have to put ourselves into the situations where we serve and experience. I used to tell parents, when we would take these teenagers to Arizona, I would tell them, this kid is going to come home and tell you that's the greatest week of their life. I guarantee it. It happens every time. And here's what happens. The first three or four days, they're miserable because it's hot and it's sweaty and it's work. And then they fall in love with these kids. And suddenly they start to see these kids respond to them and see these, these, these Navajos and they start loving on them and they start loving back because they're, I, you know, it's, it's, it's the same for people everywhere. But man, right there in that part of the reservation, that little town of 250 people, there's like, there are no moms and dads together. None of the kids stay with both parents, none of them. None of them. They often live with the mom and her new boyfriend and the dad lives across the street. And, it, and it's just screwy and mixed up and, they, and they, they don't know what love is. And so when a group of people from Virginia come and love them for 11 days, they go crazy. They weep. They say, take me home with you. And it'll change your life every time these teenagers would come home and go, mom, dad, this changed my life. Now, I know sometimes it's emotional and it doesn't, but for some of them, it's caught. The first trip, there was a guy named Bill Manning that went. And he told me it changed his life. He told me a couple years later, one day I'm going to live here. And 18 years later, he does. He lives there. Because of the joy. Sleeping outdoors, hot as the double hockey stick place, it, and and, and you, you doing all this stuff, it's dirty. It's everything that I wouldn't normally want. And it was the greatest time. It was joy. It was joy. Why? I said this, I said this last week, but I just want to say it again. Here's, here's the hammer blows of God coming to us to remember. Up is down. Position is not grasped. Power is given up. Rich becomes poor. To reign is to submit. To have power is to serve. To have happiness is to seek happiness for others. To exalt is to humble. To find the life you need, you must lose your life. The way of blessing is to take the curse. The way to heal others is to be broken. The way to greatness is to give it up. Up is down. God has turned the world upside down. He does things differently than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He calls us now to live like Jesus in a way that I'm telling you, you start living like Jesus, you will have friends, you will have family, you have people that will not understand. They won't get it. And you may get pushed back. You may not. God bless you. That'd be awesome. But you may. Because the way of Jesus is so different. But it's the way of joy. It's the way of hope. It's the way of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you expressed it in so many different ways. We see it in Jesus and how he loves and what he did for us, for the joy set before him. He endured the shame of the cross, the pain and the agony and the curse in our stead. And now holiness is Christ in me. God, we thank you for that, that we have this now available to us. Help us to learn to wrestle Help us to learn to submit 
and help us to see the joy that comes in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.